Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. The State of European Tech Report has just been published by venture capital firm Atomico. Is the question, why hasn't Europe produced a Google or a Facebook yet? Or is the right question, what's the probability that the next Google, the next Facebook is founded from Europe? And is that higher than it's ever been? I would say with absolute conviction that that probability has never been higher. That was Tom Weiermeyer, author of the report. I invited him and Nicholas Enstrom, the founder of Skype and CEO of Atomico, into the studio to tell me about the potential of European tech, how investment in the industry is changing, and why the sector has a problem with talent and diversity. So, Nicholas, you're way too young to be called the grand old man of European tech, but you do personify many of the changes that have happened here over the past couple of decades. You founded the Kazar peer-to-peer file-sharing app in 2000, I believe. Why did you become an entrepreneur back then when it wasn't particularly fashionable? Well, the decision to become an entrepreneur was in 99, when it still was at the top of the market. And I had the benefit to work for a very entrepreneurial telecom company, which was challenging the incumbents. So I learned there from the late Mr. Stenbeck how to be a disruptor. But my job was to build out the internet service provider network across Europe. So while I was doing that, I saw all these startups. I couldn't realize how they could be so successful because the infrastructure wasn't really there. But at some point, I realized that I was late to the game and I saw it passing by in front of me. So I made a decision to quit my career and my promotions basically over the Christmas holiday in 99. So I think literally everyone, investors and talent, they literally thought that the internet model, the entrepreneurial internet model did not work. So as a consequence... There were really no investors who dared to invest in founder-led disruptive tech companies. And the ecosystem of founders was very, very small. And you had quite an experience of startup life. You obviously learned a lot of lessons from Kazar, and then you struck it very big with Skype, which Mm. you sold to eBay for about 2.6 billion, I think, in 2005. And that really helped put European tech on the map. Yeah. What was the success of Skype? Yeah, so I think, to put this in context, when iSettle got acquired by PayPal, you know, which was ex-eBay for about the same amount last year. He didn't even make top five exits. It was a headline, but it wasn't a big deal because now the exits are so big. Now the exits are five or 10 times bigger. But back then, this was the biggest internet exit for a consumer service, at least globally, after the dot-com crash. So it was quite significant. And it came from Europe, a place where everyone said, it's impossible to build global tech companies from Europe, the only place you can build is Silicon Valley. So we were an outlier. And, you know, there need to be a first outlier, and then you will have other outliers. So I think it what it did do was that it gave evidence that it's possible to build great big tech companies and get a big exit from Europe. And that, it sent signal to other entrepreneurs, said, hmm, if these guys can do that, that's what I can do as well. And you've been helping to develop the whole ecosystem in Europe through Atomico, the venture capital company that you yeah. set up. What's the investment proposition for that? How are you persuading investors to put money into your fund? In the beginning, we really had to pitch hard and sell a vision. Well, we raised our first institutional fund in 2009, so 10 years ago. And the vision we had then was that great companies will come from everywhere. And in particular, Europe has a big potential because we have great universities, 
we have a great ecosystem, people in Europe are well-traveled, and by the way, Europe has produced many very successful global founder-led companies in other industries. But LPs, typically pension funds and large institutional investors, they're not paid to make bets. They're paid to be conservative. So they look back and they say, well, we don't really see the data that supports this. It was really hard in the beginning, but that has shifted. Now they're realizing that Europe actually produces very successful, lasting tech companies. And when you look across the piece of Europe, which do you think are the most interesting tech companies to watch at the moment? There are so many amazing companies. The thing that makes me very excited and that makes us at Atomic excited is, first of all, founder-led companies. We have this overarching thesis that founders is kind of the biggest success factor. But what's exciting what we see so much of now is founders who are using advanced technologies to go out and solve large societal problems. Could you give us some examples of that? So one company would be Infarm from Berlin. So they've designed uh, scalable, modular indoor farms that are, of course, data-driven. And they enable retailers to have farms right in their supermarkets or in warehouses. And the benefit to society here is that these vegetables and greens and produce doesn't have to be transported from one of the Mediterranean zones, so less carbon emission. The other benefit is that because it's fresh, the nutritional value is so much higher, so it's good for the health. And the third, it's just so much tastier. So it's a win-win-win. Tom, I'd like to come to you. For the past five years, you've been producing the State of European Tech Report, which is really the Bible of what's going on in Europe at the moment. And I guess the big takeaway this year was that you were arguing that in Europe, we tend to know what's going on in the tech world. But over the past year, this has been drawing global attention. US and Chinese investors in particular have really woken up to what's going on in Europe. Can you tell us about that trend and what the data is underlying it? Yeah, I think it's interesting. European tech as an industry has lived with skeptics for two decades. And in the meantime, has produced hundreds of billions of dollars of enterprise value. And when we started this report, it was very much the case that belief that Europe could play a role in the global technology stage was largely a belief held by insiders working within the industry. And then I think if you fast forward to today, Europe's been able to prove whether you're looking at the level of investment that flows into Europe, 35 billion projected for this year. Actually, just yesterday, we saw the announcement of the 100th billion dollar company from Europe. And I think what that has led to is a point today where that belief that was largely within has now caught the attention of the rest of the world. And as a result, what you see is that people that were on the outside, whether that was kind of on the geographic outside in the US, diverting their attention here. So are you seeing US and Chinese investors in particular coming to Europe? Yeah. So in 2019, you saw 19% of all rounds this year involved at least one US investor. That's an amount that's doubled over the five years that we've been producing this report. Nicholas, do you think that Europe might actually benefit from the US-China tech war? You know what? We don't discuss or think about that much at all, because what we are most focused on is supporting the ecosystem which is building here. And the ecosystem now is so strong. We don't need any external factors like that to help. But I would say yes, because you know Europe is 
neutral in this sense. And we can see certainly with many more Chinese investors who maybe now are excluded from investing in in U.S. to some extent or looking more and more here. But I would say they were already here before this happened. And I also think that ultimately these companies are becoming global companies. And to be global, you want to be present in Europe, you want to be present in the U.S., in Asia and Latin America. Tom, one of the other aspects of the report was this growing interest from institutional investors in Europe, although it's from an extraordinarily low base, it has to be said. How quickly are European investors warming up to the tech sector now? It's been a slow process. I think it's been a real educational journey for them to understand what's happening at the sort of foundational level in terms of the build out of entrepreneurial activity and and tech ecosystems in Europe. And so what I think has changed attitudes and why you're seeing this warming up is because finally the data demonstrates that European VC can deliver returns that stand up for themselves when you benchmark them against, for example, equivalent indices in the US or, for example, against equivalent indices for European buyout funds. And so those numbers, combined with the fact that I think there is just a general sense of belief that Europe can deliver really meaningfully large outcomes from tech is created a different narrative inside those institutional investors. And that is what is shaping capital allocation. And that is why you see that, yes, it is from a small base, but we're, we're seeing record levels of capital come into the European VC ecosystem from pension funds. Right. My colleague at the FT, Tom Braithwaite, wrote a rather waspish column about the greatest thing that Europe has now learnt from Silicon Valley is hype, that we are actually getting very good at overstating what's going on in Europe. And he pointed out that when you look at all the megatech companies around the world, they tend to be US and Chinese companies. And when you look at the biggest European fundraisings of 2019, they were Northvolt, which is a company that makes batteries, Deliveroo, UiPath, a robotic software company. I mean, these are interesting companies, but none of them would look to have the potential of a kind of Microsoft or a Google or an Amazon. Are we really going to see globally competitive companies emerging from Europe? Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. It's interesting because I would argue that public market cap is the last place to look to get a sense for what's happening in European tech. The value of companies listed on public exchanges is inherently a reflection of the past. It's a lagging indicator for what's happening in technology. And I think what we shouldn't lose sight of is that Europe is playing a catch-up race that's a four-decade-long story. The first US VC was incorporated in 1959. You didn't really see the first... European VCs until the late 90s. Over that period of time, well over a trillion dollars of investment, more has gone into the US than in Europe. So what we spend time looking at are what we think are more forward-looking indicators that are better reflective of the extent to which Europe has caught up. 
and say you can look at, for example, capital invested. In 2019, there's about a 3.4x difference in terms of the level of investment into technology companies in US versus Europe. That, by the way, has come down from more than 6x in just three or four years. That in and of itself is actually still a bit of a backwards looking indicator. What's probably an even more interesting place to look is early stage company formation. And if you look at, for example, the number of companies that are formed that then go on to raise an angel or a seed round, so really that first level of institutional investment into the company, the gap is now down to 1.5. That is the smallest it's ever been. And I think that gives you a sense that we've really caught up a long way. And then I think, what's the right question to ask? Is the question, why hasn't Europe produced a Google or a Facebook yet? Or is the right question... What's the probability that the next Google, the next Facebook is founded from Europe? And is that higher than it's ever been? I would say with absolute conviction that that probability has never been higher. And I think there's already a bunch of interesting companies you know, that we see across Europe that have that potential to scale to that. So you've got to name them now. Which is going to be the European Google or Amazon? Well, I think it's interesting. You look across our portfolio and, and if you look at companies like a Helix, or many others, actually, you look at the potential that they have, if all the stars align, these are companies that have the possibility to scale to a 100 billion outcome. Um, I actually don't think that they would want to become the next Google or the Facebook. I think they're not necessarily thinking in those terms. I think for them, the North Star metric is what's the impact that we can have on the world by by succeeding. You raise a very interesting point there because I think we were all at the Slush Conference in Helsinki where there was a lot of emphasis amongst young entrepreneurs about wanting to have an impact. Do you see a new generation of entrepreneurs, Nicholas, emerging who really are motivated by trying to tackle some of the biggest challenges in the world, most notably climate change? Yes, there's been a very big shift. And I think that is because of now the ecosystem is working. And when I was a founder, we wanted to have an impact. We wanted to change the world. We wanted to change telecommunications. And if you look back, I would say that most successful founders had a purpose. Bill Gates wanted to change the world by putting a, a computer on every desktop. Larry and Sergey wanted to organize the world's information. The big shift that's happened now is that now technology can be used to change the real world. So we see most of the entrepreneurs that we meet, they want to use technology to actually have an impact on society. And there's a range of different problems that they see because that they want to solve. And how most successful entrepreneurs are wired to say that they see a problem then they see an opportunity. They say, how can I solve that problem by using technology and building a company to address that? So what we need, we need more purpose-driven founders who are using technologies to address this problem. And climate is by far the biggest problem we have, but there are also other problems like healthcare, education, and other problems. And from an investment perspective, are you investing in those companies because you expect them to get that great rate of return? Or is it because they have this obviously potentially enormous societal benefit? Yeah, so we think that because they have this societal benefits, they will become more successful. And the reason for that is that the biggest challenge any tech company has today is access to talent. And we all know because we've done, well, we and others have done a lot of research that says that young talent much rather work for companies which has a real purpose and they want to work for companies which are ethical 
So if you want to win a talent war, you better have a very, very strong purpose. The other important thing is for a company to be successful is customers. And if you look at consumers, they much rather buy products and services from companies which are providing their services in a sustainable way. Then the other thing that companies need is investors and they need capital. Today, you can get capital from everywhere. But what we see with a lot of the big institutions led by the big pension funds, and this is where the European pension funds are way ahead of others, they're starting to invest in other investors and companies which have a purpose. And the same thing then when you come to the public investors, institutional investors, this is something they're looking for. So now it's flipped over to the other side that actually if you're purpose-driven, if you're addressing a world problem, you're better off for all those financial reasons. So you think some of these companies might in effect snowball because of that momentum exactly. that could be built up. All right. One of the other things that came out of the report, Tom, was really the shocking lack of diversity that there still is in European tech. And I think 92% of all funding still went to founding teams that were all men. What can we do to change this? You're right. We first covered this in our report last year and the numbers then were shocking and this year's numbers were no different. Just 8% of funding in 2019 went to founding teams that are women or of mixed gender. The level of investment going to founders from other underrepresented groups is difficult to quantify, but you know it's a fair bet that it's even lower than that. So we've not seen any meaningful progress not just since last year, but actually over the course of the last five years. Now, what was positive from the report was we were able to demonstrate that awareness of this issue is growing. People generally do feel better educated. They feel more empowered to be able to take positive steps. I think what was surprising or shocking, I should say, was that we also could see that the onus to try to make positive change in terms of building a more diverse and inclusive tech industry here in Europe is falling upon the women and people from underrepresented backgrounds to lead the charge themselves. And so in order to accelerate change and to drive that number to a much higher level, it's going to require this to be a first and foremost priority, not just for some, but for all. Final question. We have a new European Commission taking office. What do you think the one thing needs to be done at the policy level, either at the European level or national government level, to accelerate this tech development in Europe? So I think the next 10 years is going to be much more about policy and regulation for the obvious reasons that we have big tech is more powerful and also technology is going to become more powerful. So I don't think that we haven't lobbied to the commission or to any politicians, like we need you to help us to build ecosystem because now that is working. I think what's important is that we make sure that there's a level playing field. And you know, I'm very proud of being a European that we are leading the way on important issues such as privacy, which has been far too neglected. But what is important that is that when the commission are leading the way in all these policies that we need to make sure that there's not policies and regulation that makes it harder for European startups to get off the ground. And there's a risk where policymakers are looking at the big US and Chinese tech companies, which they should do. They should also look at the European tech companies, but we need to make sure that it doesn't make it too difficult 
or more difficult for European companies because of regulation. But we still have quite fragmented markets across Europe. We have kind of very varying uh, labor yeah. laws, uh, yeah. disincentives. Sure. On so, so you know, if there's a magic wand and we could just you know, do a few things, right? What we need to do is make it easier to have unified the labor laws because many of these startups are very few people, but they might be in different countries. And that becomes very complicated and costly to manage that. Examples such as stock option plans. One way to incentivize early employees in a startup is not to pay them a lot of money, but to give them a share of the company, which I think fundamentally is the right thing to do. But it's very, very complicated because there's different tax laws in different countries. So this is one thing that would be great that it could be unified. And then also just the basic employment laws. Mm-hmm. And Tom, when you look at the data, has there been a chilling effect from Brexit? The UK's had a record year of investment, so you don't see any impact in those headline numbers. The UK has produced more billion-dollar tech companies than any other country in Europe. So I think the UK will continue to be the preeminent place within Europe to build a tech company, mainly because it's had you know a longer head start. We've seen multiple cycles of successful tech companies being built from the UK. I think Brexit has an interesting compounding effect on a long-term structural trend that has been playing out over five years or longer in Europe, which is that where once opportunity in tech within Europe was concentrated in a few places, now because of the success of building really vibrant and growing tech hubs all across the region, Talented individuals that have ideas and have entrepreneurial ambitions may no longer be quite so likely to move to the UK as they once were. And it's interesting. So there's this stat that says that people in the European tech industry are 10 times more likely or have been historically to move country than the average EU citizen because of that concentration of opportunity that existed historically. Going forward, I think because You know, if you're a founder, if you're someone that wants to join a growing tech startup, you essentially have more options than you would have ever had in the past. That number's going to shrink, I think. And that's something that Brexit certainly does not play to the UK's benefit because whether you're creating actual barriers to the mobility of talent or whether it's just a perception, you want to be creating an environment where the best talented individuals want to come to you. And I think that's where perhaps there's a negative long-term impact. Thank you very much, Nicholas and Tom. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. In the meantime, we welcome comments and suggestions from listeners. So please email us at tectonic at ft.com and let us know what you think of the show. This episode of Tectonic is produced by Fiona Simon and Persis Love.